Welcome to Porter Wright's Antitrust Law Source. Good afternoon. This is Jay Levine, your host of Antitrust Law Source, and I am joined here um, by my colleague Jetta Sandin. How you doing, Jetta? Pretty good, Jay. Yourself? Oh, doing well. Uh, this is going to be a little bit different of a podcast. Uh, Jetta and I just came back from listening the oral arguments at the Supreme Court in the uh, case Tyson v. I got to get this name right. I'm not sure I'm going to get it right. Bopakeo. And um, essentially, it was a very interesting case and has a lot of ramifications for class action, and that's why we wanted to get it out to you as soon as possible. So without further ado, let me turn it over to Jetta to kind of set the table and tell you what the facts of the case are, because they're, uh, as you might imagine, slightly important to um, understanding what the arguments were. So the case today, Tyson's, is essentially... It could be billed as a class action lawsuit or a Fair Labor Standards Act lawsuit, which is actually one of the issues that the justices were struggling today. But essentially, the complaint is that Tyson's workers who were involved in hog slaughtering had to spend a substantial amount of their day dofting and donning, so putting on and taking off, uh, particular sanitary and protective gear every day. And that time they were not compensated for. And in some instances, that time would lead the workers to work more than 40 hours a week. And therefore, Tyson's was not paying the requisite overtime compensation to its employees. So plaintiffs brought a class action litigation and alleged various violations of the Fair Labor Standards Act and leads us to today, to the Supreme Court argument, where the argument largely focused on the use of averages and what is appropriate for class certification in this case. Right. If you read the briefs, it's there were two claims in the case. There was the FLSA claim, and under the FLSA, you can have a collective action where plaintiffs who believe they have been injured by not being compensated time and a half for working overtime can opt in. It's a you know procedural device that that works for FLSA, but there was also a sort of analog state claim under the Iowa um, state law, and that was brought under Rule 23, and that was certified as a class for all all uh, uh, workers who had been injured who had not been compensated um, correctly for um, for working over 40 hours because, um, again, their claim was that this doffing and donning activity was quote-unquote work under the meaning of the statutes and should have been compensated for, which was a legal issue to be tried at the case. Um, and the jury ultimately found that uh, that was work activity that should have been compensable and wasn't. Now, as Jed alluded to, what what happened is Tyson doesn't have records uh, as to how long it takes for each, you know, there was a slaughter there was a slaughter floor and a processing floor. And they each have sort of different activities, and they don't really have records as to how much time it takes for you to put on your protective gear and take off your protective gear or to walk or whatever. And um, Tyson tried to compensate that for something called K-time, and there's also differences as to whether you're wielding a knife or not. Different protective gear. Yeah, so you, you put on more, and you could also have different protective gear. Um in any event, uh, they didn't really have records on that. So what the plaintiffs tried to do is they they, they took a video of 700 and some odd employees doffing and donning their protective gear. 
and they came out with an average of 18 minutes for the processing floor and I think 21 minutes for the um, slaughtering, floor. slaughtering floor. And what they did is they just added that per shift to the time records that they did have for the plaintiffs. And that determined, A, whether you worked 40 hours or not. Because if you didn't work 40 hours, then, you know, it's not a problem. Um, and if you did work more than 40 hours, if that kicked you over, it will also determine how much you know, pay you were owed that you weren't, right? So it was both a liability and a damages issue. Um, right, and, and maybe I'm, I'm showing that I, I drank a little bit of the Kool-Aid for the petitioner <laughs> side because that's how they presented it, whereas the respondents didn't quite seem it that way. But uh, I'll, leave, I'll let the listener uh, determine on their own. But So the two questions presented before the Supreme Court were, one, is this use of averaging appropriate? And I'm oversimplifying it. Yes. Um, you agree I'm oversimplifying <laughs> it. The second is, can a class have uninjured members? Because it, it was clear that the class is certified had members who were uninjured because the, the actual variation in the doffing and donning activity was quite, quite remarkable, at least if you, if you believe the, the, the numbers bandied about by the petitioners. It ranged, what was it? Between 30 seconds and 10 minutes. Right. So I, it, that goes to show, like, Great variation. Great variation. Everybody's wearing different stuff. And so... Um, some people are just slower than others. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so... And some people, uh, you know, put stuff on while they walk. Some people do it all in the locker room. Some people chat. I, there, there's there's a lot of variation. And Says uh, the defense lawyer. <laughs> really. And so the, the point of it being that ultimately... The class may very well have, with such a variation, may very well be compensating um, uh, people who were not injured. And um, although in the briefings there seems to be back and forth whether there was a bait and switch as to whether a class can have uninjured um, members, uh, Tyson's in their opening brief seemed to suggest you can't. Then have seem, any right, and then seem to pull back on that and say you can, but you got to be able to identify them. Um, so I, that was, that just sort of sets the table. So, um, the petitioners went first and, you know, what was your impression? I think they did a pretty good job. I mean, the justices were on, well, some justices were on board. Uh, your usual, uh, Justice Alito and Justice Scalia seemed to be a little skeptical of plaintiff's side, um, but, well, on the petitions, how do you think the... Um... the peti- I have to admit, I'm kind of a little bit in favor of the, the plaintiffs in this one. Okay, well, there went her bonus. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, well, it, it... Mostly, mostly because of uh, petitioners kind of... Per- the, the trial strategy that they took throughout the, the um, evolution of this case kind of plays into their argument of, oh, you can't... You can't saddle us with these this average damages but at various points in in time along the way defendants had the capability of getting a more specific kind of finding from the jury and they chose not to right I, there, this case I, you know we're, we're class action lawyers here we we deal you know we defend a lot of class action suits so we're very interested in how the justices view this case and especially what opinion they'll write but there are a couple of three very funky things about this case that may not make it altogether appropriate for the court opining on Rule 23 issues. And and I think the first is what Jetta just 
alluded to, you know, right out of the box, essentially, you know, uh, Justice Kennedy, the first words were, look, you never doubted their expert. You didn't bring your own expert, um, you know, and although... And and in fact, you had a previous expert who did almost the exact same thing that plaintiff's experts did that you're now complaining of. Right. I mean, Justice Sotomayor said, wait, wait, wait. You know, back in the late 90s, Tyson's predecessor, when they were hit with an, with an FLSA, in terms of the record keeping, they, they, they did the same type of, in order to, to determine how much to add to each um, employee's time. Uh, time, they did a study similar to the, what the plaintiffs did here and came out with, you know, an average of four minutes. And that, they thought, sort of satisfied their FLSA obligations. Obviously, the plaintiffs didn't think so. But nevertheless, they employed the same methodology. So uh, at least Justice Sotomayor was very skeptical of, of Tyson's posture um, here. The petitioners said, look, there, there are two different issues. Nevertheless, you know, that, was, that together with Tyson's trial strategy, because yeah. they, they, they advocated for a single sum. They did not ask the jury to award pl- plaintiff by plaintiff, even though they had spreadsheets that would have allowed them to do that. They didn't ask for a special verdict form. Um, they, they didn't ask they for... They actually objected to it. Right, and they didn't ask for any special interrogatories. So at, at, many of the justices, I mean, Justice Kagan, Justice Sotomayor, I mean... Justice uh, Breyer. Justice Breyer. I, you know, Tyson says, essentially, they didn't invite the error, and even if they did, you still have no jurisdiction to award um, damages to somebody who's not injured. But clearly, some of the justices looked upon this with a little bit of a skeptical eye because they think sort of Tyson's may have manufactured the problem. So that was certainly one problem. The other problem is this is an FLSA action as well as a Rule 23. And as we'll see in a moment, FLSA may have their own substantive rule pursuant to a, a, a much older Supreme Court case called Mount Clemens, which may allow um, plaintiffs where the employer doesn't keep the type of records it needs to keep allows them to determine the amount of overtime based on a just and reasonable inference. And then, now, something also happened at the jury level. The damages. Oh, the damages? The fact that they didn't bifurcate the trial. Yeah. They had an opportunity to do it, and and defendants objected to it. They wanted it all at one time, so they had an opportunity to clearly establish whether they were using these averages for liability or damages purposes, and they chose not to. And then when the jury came back with an award, they came back with, like, half. Oh, that's what you were getting at. Yeah, that's what ah. I was getting at. But, um, and the problem is, you know, and Roberts kept kept really hammering on this. What, what does do that mean? Know? Yeah, because they, the plaintiffs asked for one number, jury gave them half what they asked for, but because we don't have any sort of special verdict form or interrogatories from the jury, we're not quite, no one knows, in which, you know, plaintiffs actually admit it. They don't know why the jury only awarded them half. Was it because they believed more people were uninjured than the plaintiffs claim were uninjured? Or did they not believe the plaintiffs expert in terms of the average? Did they think the average was actually of time, the average time spending doffing and donning this protective gear was it actually less than what the plaintiffs were claiming? Right. So at the end of the day, we don't know whether that single sum is going to compensate people who the jury may have found to be uninjured. 
um, and that seemed to, um, uh, especially Roberts, that seemed to yeah. to, um, to to goad him as well as to um, as well as Alito. He wanted. He seemed to want some mechanism to determine who was and who wasn't injured. Then you got Sotomayor, who thinks that defendants have no right to quiver about I, that. Yeah, that was that was a little bit of a bombshell because it came out of left field. Although you know, sort of plays in. She says, "Why do you have standing?" To, I mean, it's a single sum. What do you care what the allocation is? Doesn't affect your liability. And 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 Lord knows that is what every plaintiff's lawyer uh, briefs. I mean, we've seen it in our own cases, and that sort of um, uh, and the petitioners, you know, you know, shot back that Phillips Petroleum tells you you can. And look, this is a Rule Twenty Three damages class that binds all of the absent class members, and if they're being undercompensated or whatever, they they're losing substantive rights. Um, and you are, and the defendant is losing a substantive right to sort of challenge it. Um, but this this issue of whether you know does a defendant can the defendant say anything about the allocation is is clearly sort of up in the air and behind the scenes. And I, I don't know if this is the case that's going to rule on it or not. Mm, probably not. Yeah, uh, I agree. But uh, but probably sort of is there. Um, well, a few other um, interesting tidbits. Uh, Kagan. Uh, not once, no, probably not twice, but at least three times, kind of said, look, this is an FLSA problem. I mean, this is a special rule under Mount Clemens. I, we don't have to bother with Rule 23. And she seemed to want to dispose of the case that way and not get into this issue on yeah. Rule 23. And, you know, the, 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 you know, the respondent was sort of okay with that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, sort of waved his hands, but, but it's still good under Rule 23, but essentially said that's fine um you know and Breyer seemed to say look if it's statistics and it's a just and reasonable inference what's the problem and 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 Breyer kept uh, using antitrust as a um <laughs> as a uh, as a as a uh, indication um well he had two hypotheticals that were cute uh go ahead <laughs> oh he Enjoys colors. He ha- <laughs> we have a green room, a blue room, and a yellow room. And in each of them, if we have various employees who take specific amounts of time to doft and don their their uniforms, what's the big deal? Why do we care if we're going to average them together? Why is that not reasonable? Right, and he also said, like, in, in an antitrust case, let's say the, the allegation is you price fix from January to December, and then the jury comes back and awards damages from January to June. Well, your original class certification is going to have people who bought between June and December, but that's not a problem. Um, I found it interesting that re- that petitioners council brought up Comcast when uh, yes. Justice Breyer mentioned that that hypothetical, which I don't know if I agree with uh, that with respondents count- with petitioners, petitioners council that it's actually a Comcast issue. Well, I think he was saying that look, it, it, it's in that case, it's probably that the that the expert did January to to December, to, to December and if you're only giving January to June, it may be a different conspiracy or a different set of facts. That doesn't tie to the theory that the damages aren't now tying to the theory of liability. The problem is you can't really deal with a hypothetical like that in, in the yeah. conceptual sense. But I, I think Breyer's point was when you originally certified the class, well, now when you have a verdict, obviously the fact that retroactively you're going to have some people that were uninjured, who cares? And I, and I think Alito was, was okay with that as yeah. long as you can identify... Those people who aren't going to be injured. Right. And that's what really... 
nobody could really sort of speak to very well there. And um, I, I guess the, the, the point was, you know, Roberts kept saying, okay, well, well how is this money going to be allocated? I mean, you got to lump sum. How do you, what is the fair way? How do we know, since we don't know what the jury held? And I think Respondents Council basically will do it pro rata. And it, it was a little bit, I mean, not amusing, but it, it, Robert said, look, if we don't know why the jury did what they did, what's your what's your basis for the allocation? And <laughs> Respondents Council says, well, Tyson didn't ask for a special verdict form or a special interrogatory. Upon which Justice Chief Justice Roberts basically said, I want a more substantive answer than that. Yeah. You know, so it, it, we really didn't get um, a clear um, answer on that. But And then Justice Kennedy, as is his way, sort of got to the heart of it. And he said, look, how much of this case turns on the fact that Tyson's didn't keep good records? I mean, because to be honest, bad facts make bad law. I mean, if, if the whole reason they had to use the averaging is because Tyson failed their obligations, which petitioners, you know, you know, vehemently oppose that they they failed in any way. They, but if that is the case, then you know, you sort of understand why you have to kind of use this sort of thing. But I thought the the respondents had a good answer as to what Tyson's could have done to make it easy. What what was it? Oh, it was simple. Just put the time clock in the locker room. Yeah, so they punch it in right when they get in. Then you would know. You would have records. You wouldn't have to guess or estimate or average. But the time clock is not in yeah. the locker room. It's, I believe, on the it's processing floor. Yeah. floor so. uh, which is a little bit odd. I mean, I, it seems like a very simple fix. Um, there must be more to it, but, you know, we're only lawyers. Uh, <laughs> but I, I guess the, the other thing it, there seemed to be, and there was some back and forth which surprised me as to, which is a factual matter, as to how much variation there really was, whereas at some point the petitioners pointed out the district court found that there was a lot of variation. The respondents right. basically said, well, it all clusters around the average. Right. But then government said that the lower court and the circuit court found that they, the activities were substantially similar. Right. So I, that that should be a factual question, and, and whatever that, that factual resolution is, you know, yeah. if in fact, I mean, if in fact, Everybody's okay with using averaging when there's not a lot of variation. Well, that's fine. Uh, I, at some point, I think the justices would like some standard for that variation. Yeah. But neither side was really willing to give it. I have to give a shout-out, though, to Justice Ginsburg for knowing the case cold because she knew which equipment, the exact equipment that each Tyson's employee had to doff and don every day, yeah. even better than respondents' counsel did. Well, he got like six out of seven. It was he pretty did. good. Um, but I, Kennedy asked the most, you know, again, the most pertinent. He goes, look, I want to write an opinion. Averaging is okay when? Fill in the blank. And one gave him a standard. Well, right. So the respondent's <laughs> so the respondent's answer was every case is different. It depends on the context. And I'm just looking at my notes. And that um, petitioner's counsel basically said average is okay when the when the activity is homogenous, like walking. Um, but when it's when you're talking about an activity where there's wide variation, that's not good. And went on to say that Mount Clemens, this FLSA case basically said, look, you still got to prove the basic fact of injury individually. You can't use any st- any any averaging. Once you've proven that the guy, that the, he or she was working the 40 hours already and was already into the overtime, 
then you can use an averaging to essentially compute the amount of damages. So he petitioners make a difference between using averaging for liability and for damages, and respondents didn't seem to buy that. No. They, they Well, they, they said, first of all, they know that on average, people were already working 48 hours. So they were, for the most part, most of the um, class members were above over and above the 40 hours to begin with. But secondly, they... It's a reasonable inference. They think that the the it is a reasonable extension of Mount Clements. If you don't already believe right. Mount Clements allows you to use this statistical averaging to get to the forty hours and above, it is a reasonable extension of the rule that already exists. Right. So you know, and and in their briefs, petitioners you know felt that was sort of a violation of Article Three standing. But um, so it, it is interesting. I mean, this case could deal with. The use of averaging uh, to determine either liability or damages um, could deal with with you know uh, needing a mechanism to determine who is injured and who is not. Could deal with sort of Article Three standing issues on this kind of stuff. Could deal with whether defendants, you know, in class actions have a have standing to deal with allocation issues. Yeah. Um, could deal with a lot of that or none. Or none. Um, Justices could totally kick it on a procedural issue and wait for another day to when they have a better case with better facts to make better law. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 we could easily see, I think, them basically saying, look, given the fact that all of these funky you know, issues with it, uh, we're not going to make any broad pronouncements on Rule 23. I could see them affirming it, basically saying, Tyson, you invited the error. Um, we, they could somehow yeah. say, look, it was improvidently granted, um, um, or they could just again be very narrow and say we're, we we don't need to deal with um, Rule Twenty Three because we're going to deal with with it under FLSA and not make any broader pronouncements. Even though I find that a little bit hard to do, only because they sort of merged the two. Because for yeah. FLSA, you have to opt in, and 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 fewer people opt in than would be in the class. So. Right. Um, but nevertheless, I think I think there's enough avenues for the justices not to deal with some of the um, more pressing class action issues um, if they want to. Um, but if they want to start signaling what they want to do with class actions, they right. could use this as an opportunity. We'll know in about four months. Yeah, I guess. So um, we just wanted to bring this to you in real time. Um, again, I am Jay Levine, uh, your host of Antitrust Law Source. I can be reached at J the letter J, L-E-V-I-N-E, at porterite.com, or at J-A-Y-L-L-E-V-I-N-E on Twitter. I'm also on LinkedIn. And Jetta can be reached at? J-S-A-N-D-I-N at porterite.com, and I'm also on LinkedIn. So uh, thank you very much. Tune in again, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Have a great day. Bye. Porterite Morrison Arthur LLP offers this content for informational purposes only as a service for our clients and friends. This content is not intended as legal advice for any purpose and you should not consider it as such. All rights reserved.